episode 22 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week, inside the Roleplay Studio, I have Renee Ritchie. Many of you may be familiar with her editing work on Amaranthine from Machine Age Productions, as well as Flatpak Fix the Future. Renee is also a convention organiser currently working on Convolution, which goes November 2nd through 4th this year. However, taking the lion's share of her creative energy at the moment is Farewell to Fear, which I'm excited to hear more about during the interview. So without further ado, hi there Renee, how's it going? It's do- I'm doing great, how are you? I'm doing uh, just, just fine, it's a bit of an earlier start than we had intended, so I'm going to watch a few more episodes of Game of Thrones this evening before I uh, go to bed. I tend to let them sort of build up and then watch a whole, a whole bunch of them at, the to- at a time, so, so I'm, I'm keen to find out what's going to happen. So, um, for the benefit of people that aren't familiar with your work, um, I've got a few sort of preliminary questions where you can sort of let me know where you're coming from and, and where you're at right now. So, how long have you been a role player? I've been a role player for about nine or ten years now. Right. I started in college, and I kind of haven't looked back. <laughs> right. Um, and so, what did you start with? Uh, as far as a game system? Sure. Um, I actually started out with uh, the Mind's Eye Theater Rules, uh, the Laws of the Night Revised. Right. Um, my first experience with role-playing was actually involved with the Camarilla Fan Club. Right. A gentleman who was trying to catch my attentions in college right. noticed that I had an interest in vampires, which I've had in a, since I was about 10. Right. So he decided to capitalize on that and say, hey. <laughs> and so uh, I had what a lot of people have described as these first standard gamer girl experience when dealing with a gaming group. I literally walked in the door and about half of the half of the men who were in the room literally stopped what they were doing, kind of just whipped their head around to the door and said, there's a girl here? Right. I'm pleased that uh, that, that, that was your first experience, not necessarily because it was uncomfortable for you, although maybe it was the opposite, but uh, a few of the, the women that I've spoken with recently hadn't really had that sort of... Uh, what I would consider authentic gamer girl experience, but apparently is not as authentic as I thought. But um, where I came from, there were very few uh, women that were interested in uh, role-playing. I mean, there were very few people full stop, but none of them were women. Um, And then I moved on to uh, role-playing at a relatively large university in a pretty big city. And even then, there were very few girls that I could think of that were were into role-playing. I'm not quite sure why that was, but... Nonetheless, um, I was never in a situation where I was like, no, you can't play because uh, you're a girl. And it sounds like your first experience was was relatively uh, positive. But prior to playing in university, were you aware of Dungeons & Dragons and were you told you weren't allowed to play at all? Um, Not really. My first real awareness of role-playing games in general was actually the Sailor Moon RPG. Right. (laughs) Not too many guys playing that, probably. <laughs> Not so much, no. Um, I was literally shopping in Hot Topic because at the time I was really into anime mm-hmm. and wanted and I wanted picture I wanted books that had more pictures and artwork from various anime that I liked. And Sailor Moon was kind of my gateway drug in there. So I saw the Sailor Moon role playing game book, which I both which I primarily got for the pictures. I won't lie. I never. <laughs> I, I just get it for the pictures, honest. <laughs> Is the opposite yeah. of Playboy, I suppose. 
<laughs> yeah, I just read that for the article. That's right. <laughs> and so you had uh, Sailor Moon, but but just for the pictures, of course. Um, and then you, so you were actually your first experience with role playing was was LARPing. Then you were saying it was Mind's Eye. Theater. Yeah. Uh, my primary my my primary experience with role playing as a whole, I mean, from the very beginning to what I do now, has been primarily in a LARP environment. Right. I had a theater background prior to that, right. which certainly helped. Right. It's still a very different animal if you think about it from terms of having a script, having characters you're going to play, and basically knowing what's going to happen at the end. Yes. Yes, my last guest, Kristen, was uh, was talking about uh, that exact thing, and it sounds almost like she's come from the opposite side. She was saying that uh, she really struggles with the idea of, of LARPing because um, although she's interested in theatre, she finds that she likes to not be on the whole time. She enjoys the intensity of the role-playing experience, but at the same time she likes to be able to, um, I suppose what you'd call it, break character and you know chat with, uh, with friends and... Um, you know, like eat pizza or go to the bathroom or get a cup of coffee or whatever it might happen to be. But when you're LARPing, my impression is that, that part of the experience is you know, remaining in character and doing everything in character. Is that a, 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 a wrong, um, or am, am I wrong in um, assuming that, or is LARPing much more intense in terms of the amount of time that you're on? It really depends on your group. Um, I've actually heard of a couple of experiences where friends of mine have actually gone up to major LARP events over the weekend at a camp in the woods, and they're pretty much on the entire weekend. They're constantly in character. Most of my life experience has been, you know, four-hour blocks at most once a week. Right. More often than that, the environment's a lot more casual. It's a little bit more people breaking character. If for some reason somebody says something in character that tips off an out-of-character in-joke, people will break character and start laughing. It actually happens a lot in my local LARP. Right. One of the things I really enjoy about it simply for the fact that we do have all of these characters that are constantly butting heads over one thing or another, but when we're not playing those characters, we're all really good friends, and we're not letting the in-character animosity affect our character relationships. Right. So do you still play Mind's Eye Theatre or the White Wolf version of LARPing, or do you play something different now? Um, actually, the troop game that I'm in right now, the l- rules are very closely based on the Mind's Eye Theatre rules. Right. But they've been heavily homebrewed and house-ruled to incorporate some of the aspects of the tabletop rules. Right. Simply the fact that the organizers of it took one look at the, the Mind's Eye Theatre rules and said, these are really broken. There's absolutely no way this power should work this way in a LARP environment. The power curve is really, really broken, so we're going to make it work for us. Right. You find a lot of house ruling when you're dealing with with Mind's Eye Theatre rules, at least in my own experience. I mean, even Maria, we constant rules errata, they were changed pretty regularly just because someone would find a way to exploit those rules. And they thought people would be upset or that would ruin the fun for everybody if somebody knew how to exploit those rules. Sometimes it got to the point where it was excessive. Right. Do you find that, or is there a sort of a, uh, a linked community across uh, 
America uh, between these different groups because in essence you know you're all playing these 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 characters and it's not beyond the realms of possibility that a character might be known uh, in a separate city if they're high enough profile, if they're like the prince of the city or, or whatever the title might happen to be. Is that something that, that happens? Like, I mean, I understand the idea of the Camarilla, but um, is it something that in, act- in practice occurs? Yes, absolutely. Um, there have been occasions where I've gone to a convention. I went to Gen Con last year, and people were talking about some of the old campaigns that were going on prior to the switch from the old world of darkness to the new world of darkness setting in Camarilla Fan Club. This is about 2004. Right. He was talking about events that happened at the major convention that happened in 2004 to kind of close out that storyline. Right. I mentioned my character by name. Oh, is that right, yeah? My character didn't even have any sort of major position in a city or even, you know, a larger role to play in the larger storyline, but people remembered the character. It was a little disorienting. And I've had other friends who have talked about when they've gone somewhere on a vacation and they've ended up going to one of these games and people are talking about characters that they played years ago, but apparently that that character still has an impact even now. Right. So is that because of the skill of somebody playing the game? Like, because in regular role-playing, there's not really any way to win, quote-unquote. Um, but in LARPing, it strikes me that within the confines of the game, there are real mm. ways to, to gain actual power. Because even though you're all playing these different um, avatars, I suppose... Um, when it comes to becoming the prince or, or taking on any major role, that's not something that the that the game master decides. That's something that actually, by force of will or trickery or whatever, you know, your own actions can actually propel you upwards through the Camarilla. Is that accurate, or again, is the, does the storyline dictate what your uh, character is going to do from week to week or session to session? When you're dealing with a larger player base. There seems to be a lot more emphasis on player-driven actions. Um, for example, for example, having someone uh, ascend to the position of prince. Right. Having a player character in that particular role, I mean, absolutely that's going to be a lot more player-driven as opposed to ST-driven. Or... In my particular, in, in my particular opinion, it should be. Right. It's one thing for a storyteller to want to have that narrative impact, which is great, and that's part of the reason why we all come together and play this particular game is because someone has this particular idea and vision, and we've all sort of subscribed to it in one degree or another, and that's what we came to play. However. When you are dealing with a larger group, if the ST or a storyteller or GM or what have you does overly push for one particular character to come to power, then you deal with accusations of favoritism and then it basically turns what could have been an in-character organic turn of events and colors them with a potential out-of-character bias and some people are 
perhaps not as okay with that as others. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, is what part does the storyteller actually play? Because if you... Because from your description there, it sounds like there's there's I mean there's the possibility for abuse of power. That, that's one thing. But the second thing is, I never really it never really occurred to me that there would be a storyteller per se. My my the idea that I had was that the storyteller might say, okay, you know the there's an attack by a a group of uh, of werewolves or something like that. People that are not actually played by by character, or at least somebody that's come in specifically with a purpose of of causing a problem, like something coming in from the outside. But in terms of everybody inside in the game, I I I never occurred to me that the storyteller might actually have some kind of effect on what was going on uh, with the people because all in a regular role playing game they can play the NPCs and they can start things up, but in mm. a LARP. Unless there's a whole bunch of things happen, I mean, does stuff even happen off camera? I don't even know. Um, but unless it's going to happen off camera, you, how would they facilitate something happening? Well, it it honestly depends on what exactly is going to be happening, quote unquote, off camera. Um, at least in my own particular experience with various LARP groups, people do play their characters in small scenes with each other when there's not actually a game session going on. Uh, it's usually something that happens in downtime. Um, a lot of backroom deals have actually been brokered in that particular fashion. Um, That's cannot- okay. Yeah. Uh, as long as the players involved let the storyteller know what's going on, right. usually it's just fine. Um I don't know how the the rules work in the in the new um, what minds I theater. I'm not sure what, quite what that's called now. But um, but what say for example you had a uh, Nosferatu or, or I'm not sure what the equivalent is. But you know they've got obfuscate and they're good at sneaking around the place. And they say to the storyteller or, or whatever, I'm actually going to obfuscate myself so that people can't see me, um, and I'm going to follow you know Vampire X and Vampire Y all around the place. Um, but then if they have this backroom deal where people talk about, you know, whatever it might happen to be, um, mm. do the, are they then required to tell the Nosferatu what they saw um, and allow them to act on it? Or is it actually in secret and there's nothing that the Nosferatu can do? That honestly depends on how strict the storyteller is on that particular front. I mean, there have been cases where there has been, you know, a character who's been following around, character A's been following around character B, and then character B goes to talk to character C about uh, subject X. Um, if, if subject B and subject C go to BST and tell them about that particular conversation, and sneaky character A over here has already logged the action with the storyteller that they're going to be following character B. Right. It's going to get back to them. Right. Do they have to roll the dice or do rock, paper, scissors or some way to determine if their following is successful or is it a case of, you know, I tell a storyteller I'm, I'm watching them so therefore they're successful? Is that, like, how does that play out? Usually there is, usually there is some sort of mediation involved, especially if they're using a power like Obfuscate. Right. That's what they need to make sure that the power goes off. And if for some reason they, oh, I don't know, they trip over something or they do something that might otherwise get them noticed or break that off the skate, 
the person they're following can sometimes get an opportunity to break their obfuscate or notice that they're being followed. Right. And so if somebody has successfully performed their obfuscate and they're sort of wandering around and wherever it is that you might happen to be playing, do they, like, how do people know that they can't be seen to not interact with them? Do they have to hold a special sign or how do they, how does that play out? Involved. Um, depending on the troop, it could be a different hand gesture. They could have their arms crossed over their chests or it could be, you know, a hand over their face. Um, when I was, when I first started LARPing, it was in Southern California. So we had to be really careful about our hand signals. So yes. they interpreted as gang signs. Mm. So usually, usually what they ended up doing was either, you know, holding up a hand over their face or crossing their arms over their chest. Right. And this is actually a normal thing through most LARP troops that I've dealt with. There's at least some sort of signal out of character that this is, that this character cannot be seen in character and so you basically need to role-play as if they weren't there. Right. Now, you mentioned earlier on you had to be careful of the gestures that you, you made, and you mentioned it in relation to, to gang signs and so on and, and so forth. Now, that means you must be playing out somewhere in, in public. Is that pretty standard, or do you sometimes have people that have big manor houses and everybody plays in the garden? Or how, does, how do you select a venue for doing LARPing? That again, is going to depend on where you are and the means of the players involved. Um, that particular troop was actually on the UC Riverside campus. We uh, actually had a, uh, a student organization on campus, and we were able to reserve rooms that way. I was actually in charge of that student organization for a year, so I knew a lot of the basics behind it and actually tried to make it more than just this shell organization just to make sure that my... LARP chapter had a room to play in. Right. And right now, the troop that I'm playing with, our game site is actually the few blocks of downtown Mountain View, California. Uh, there are various little alcoves and smaller alleyways that are actually really well lit and it's really safe. And, you know, parts of the local park where we can role play scenes and have separate spaces if people need to have private conversations. Right. Um, the site is really gorgeous. And do you have to, like, let the police know what you're doing, or...? Usually it's a good idea to let law enforcement know what's going on so they don't think that you're just loitering or that you're trying to cause trouble. Right. Uh, and the at the Mountain View site, we actually have been regularly in touch with the police, and there have been several different LARP troops that have played in that space over the past 15 or 20 years. Right. Police are usually fairly familiar with folks running LARPs in that area. Right. Um, when I was in Riverside, since we, we had already had the space set aside officially through the university, occasionally we had campus police come by, but they knew what was going on. I mean, we knew, they knew we weren't going to be harming anybody. They knew we weren't going to be damaging property. Right. So that, was usually, that usually went over pretty well. Right, and had you met? Did you meet any resistance with uh, with law enforcement? Um, in terms of, you know, not everybody is accepting of people doing different stuff, and is that has that been a problem at all with um, the public, even, or, or with law enforcement, or anybody, in fact? No, actually, um, the only time that I've ever encountered an issue with law enforcement 
was when we were in a spot where that was technically after hours and they were being very strict about the uh, county rules about when that particular space would be open. Right. Basically, they were treating us like we were pretty much anybody that would be on that particular property at a time when we're supposed to be on. Uh, As far as any particular prejudice for what we were doing, I've never actually experienced that. Uh, More often than not, we have two or three people who come up to us during the course of the game on on my normal Friday Night LARP asking what we're doing and wanting to get more information. We've actually recruited a couple of people that way, too. It's it's kind of nice. And is that the only acceptable time to uh, break character when somebody comes up and, you know... Says, I don't mean to bother you, but <laughs> or, well, that, uh, or you just go, oh, food. No, no. <laughs> um, usually, if somebody if if somebody asks, that is a perfectly acceptable time to break character. Um, I, like I said, occasionally, sometimes if a moment gets really tense and the players need to step back, yes. they will break character, take a moment to breathe, and then continue the scene. Or if for some reason there's a rules question, that's another good time to break character. Right. Um, it really, a lot of it is using your own common sense. And there have been a couple of times where folks have ended up breaking character and just talking out of character because they were bored. Right. Sure. I guess just like any regular role-playing session then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, but are there some troops that take it a little bit more seriously? Because um, as unfortunate and unfair as it may be, generally speaking, if role players, like tabletop role players, are going to look down on anybody, it's going to be LARPers. And, and, and why that is, I'm not sure. Part of it, I think, stems from that um, crazy um, LARPing video with the guy throwing his lightning bolts and stuff like, you know, that's the... Are you familiar with the video I'm talking about? very familiar with that video and quite frankly I even point and laugh at those guys I'm not (laughs) (laughs) I know and it's just and it's and it's unfair because they're obviously into it they're having a good they're having a good time but that's kind of the view that even role players get of laughs because even though we're such a small hobby I and you can feel free to tell me I don't know what I'm talking about here but if role playing is very very small then LARPing is absolutely tiny. I don't know what the crossover between the two of them is, but I would imagine that there are significantly more role players than there are LARPers. Is that accurate? I would say that's accurate. Um, I think a major reason why there is why there is such a large divide is because a lot of folks do have a hard time maintaining their character for long periods of time. Right. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, and I mean, like I said, even in even in LARP groups, people break character. It's sure. happened at least a couple times a night, mm. for one reason or another. Especially if something happens in character that is absolutely so ridiculous that there's absolutely no way you can keep a straight face. Sure. Okay. So character would absolutely disapprove. Uh, if, if I may give an example, uh, recently in my LARP in my LARP group, the prince character is actually an NPC. And she's, uh, she is a Scottish pirate. And there's another character who is also a Scottish pirate. They're, they do actually have a character tie-in in the background. Mm-hmm. So as a practical joke, the prince decided to go into the nightclub that was, everybody was hanging out with at and threw a sheep into the club. Right as a practical joke, mm-hmm. 
towards the other Scottish Bruja because he's he's very Scottish. We're talking wears a kilt all the time. Right, he's right. Okay, friend. Um, and so, as a practical joke, she opens the door. She grabs the sheep. She throws the sheep at the other character. Right. And just kind of stands there and laughs. Right. And there, that the other Scottish, the Scottish pilot that's played by my boyfriend, the one who is the butt of this joke, sure, doesn't like that particular stereotype about Scottish people. Right. Yes. Like, literally rolling, laughing. He could not keep character. Yeah. Because yeah. it was. He found it absolutely hilarious. Right, that's the old the, the old joke, like, how do the Scottish find sheep in the long grass? Mmm, not bad. Oh. <laughs> but you can substitute any nationality in there if you like. I'm from New Zealand, and so we substitute Scottish for Australians, and then Australians substitute uh, Australians for um, for New Zealanders. So that's... Oh, yeah. uh, I've heard it several ways. I've even heard it substituted with uh, Welshman. Actually, yes, yeah, oh yeah. I'm sure anybody that uh, anybody that's different gets the gets tired of that brush. Um, alrighty. So, uh, my last question for you regarding laughing because I didn't really know a lot about it. And I feel like I know a lot more about it now. Perhaps even um, I'd know more if I were to, to do it. But my question for you is, when does laughing start? Like the 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 line I always hear is, as soon as you stand up, you've begun laughing. Do you do you have a hard and fast rule about uh, when laughing starts when you're uh, role playing? Uh, usually, when the ST says "game on." Oh, okay. um, <laughs> I mean, other than that, that's pretty much what I go by. Simply for the fact that if I try to get too much into character beforehand, right, it gets a little creepy. Right. Especially yes. if I'm playing a character that is absolutely nothing like me, or that I find morally reprehensible. Sure. <laughs> okay, so you, so when it comes time for for actually doing the laughing, do you sort of like do any warm up activities, you know, bubble gum, lion face, lemon face, that sort of thing? <laughs> <or>? <laughs> um, as far as any vocal exercises, not so much. No. Okay. Um, d- though. It depends on the individual. I mean, if it, if it's something that they need because they're playing a character who is who is classically vocally trained, sure. or if it's if it's something that makes them feel better, it, every individual is going to have their own sort of, I guess, pregame that right. they go through. Sure. Uh, a lot of folks in my particular troupe have soundtracks for their characters, right. and so they plug their iPods in and they listen to that for a little bit. Right. Um. I had a character I was playing for a while who had a very thick Welsh accent. So sure. before I went, even went to game site, I would watch a couple of episodes of Torchwood just to get my mind into that right mindset. Right, sure. Um, it's like any actor trying to do things to get into their role and right. portray it better. Right. So aside from the LARPing then, what other games do you play at the moment? Well, right now, um, as far as non-LARP games... I do some New World of Darkness Vampire. Uh, I would like to play some more Legend of the Five Rings. Unfortunately, finding people to play that out here has been a little bit difficult, though after listening to your podcast with Sean Nittner, it sounds like I might need to play with him a little bit more. Because yes. he's local. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he um he has, he's all over the map in terms of things that he that he mm-hmm. plays, and, and also, um, have you tried any of the G plus games like Google Hangouts trying to play games via that? I have not tried that yet, though I think that might be something I will be doing in the future simply for the fact that there will be more playtests for Firewall to Fear, as, for, as I understand it, over Google Plus Hangouts. Right. Um, there will be, you know, 
there, I have other friends who are wanting to run games over a Google Plus Hangout. Right. And it sounds like a great opportunity. So you can actually see everybody's faces. You can have you can keep track of people talking. It's very similar to running a game on Skype. Right. In that way, it's just a different. It's literally just a different software. Right. So, just going back to farewell to fear for a moment. Your Kickstarter just finished. Is that right? That is correct. And did you reach your uh, targets or exceed them? Or uh, we actually exceeded our target by leaps and bounds. Uh, the initial funding goal was four thousand right. dollars. By the end of the campaign, we hit. Almost nineteen thousand dollars. It was it was it was pretty awesome. Um, David Hill, who is the main writer for it, has an amazing audience from his own freelance experience through White Wolf and Green Ronin, and he's been putting out games for a couple of years now, right. and they've constantly been building up an audience. Right. So, in that respect, I'm not surprised that it got as big as it did. Right. But it's still a mind-boggling amount of money when you're thinking about what it's going to put together. Right. And when it comes to role-playing stuff, not so much stuff outside of role-playing, but it seems to me that a lot of the role-playing games, uh, there is actually something in it for the people supporting. Like, for example... um, in some movie Kickstarters, you know, like this, you'll get a chance to see the movie, and that's your that's mm-hmm. your payoff. But in role playing uh, Kickstarters, it seems to be that if you donate over a certain amount, then there's actually something that you get for your. I don't want to say tangible because a lot of it is PDF, but there is something you actually get for it. So you're almost paying for your game in advance. Yeah, um, Kickstarter in in some ways is a, a glorified pre order. Um, I'm not. I'm not even going to lie about that. Um, and in other cases, companies do end up having additional extras that they throw in. For example, for the flat pack Kickstarter that was back in, oh goodness, either at the end of last year or the beginning of this year. It's kind of a blur at this point. Right. But one of the uh, backer levels actually got you a lunchbox. Nice. That had, you know, the logo of the game on it, like, as a sticker, and there are various little game pieces that go with with the various goals that your character's trying to accomplish in Flatpak. Right. And so, this lunchbox can carry some of those game pieces. And I've actually seen the lunchboxes. I haven't actually gotten mine yet, because... Right. They've been really busy lately with a bunch of other things going on, trying to promote Farewell to Fear. Um, Philomena Young, who is the creator of Flatpak, is actually going to have her third child literally any day now. Right. Uh, she's literally waiting to go into labor. Oh, right. That's pretty, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. That's pretty um, important, comparatively speaking, because I know yeah. a lot of, um, I was speaking with Lenny Balsera um, a week or so ago, and, and I was saying, you know, like, Back in the day, my dream was to work for TSR, and mm-hmm. in those days, if you were going to be a, you know, if you were going to be in role playing, then chances are there was going to be a, a job associated with it. Whereas nowadays, because everything is available through PDF and you can, you know, publish things yourself, and you've got Lulu and all these various other outlets open to you, there's no necessity for you to pony up large quantities of cash in order to sort of freelance your work. Whereas um, now, because you can, you know. <coughs> do a lot of that stuff in your, your spare time and you can publish it through um, PDF and, and so on and so forth. You know, that's becoming, you know, much more of a part-time job. Um, so 
the real world encroaching on role-playing projects is probably something that's going to become more common than, than less common as there are fewer you know, full-time jobs available in, uh, in role-playing. But in your experience as, a, as an editor, um, mm-hmm. is that accurate or are there becoming more sort of paying uh, work, more paying work available in, in role-playing, not necessarily um, as in terms of full-time employment, but in terms of freelance work? That's kind of a difficult one to answer, simply for the fact that there are a lot of folks out there who do make this their full-time job. Um, I'm currently not quite there yet, but I am trying to get to that point. Um, I, do, I am the in-house editor for Machine Age Productions, Pretty much at this point, any product that they're going to be putting out, my hand is going to be on it at some point in the process. Right. However, it doesn't quite pay the bills. Right. However, there are individuals who can get additional gigs that it can basically pay their bills, pay all of their living expenses and whatnot. But as far as, you know, a standard traditional 40-hour work week full-time job, you're not going to find that. Um But it's still very much a full-time job to try to promote your game. Yes. I mean, just looking at... Do you mean, I was literally compulsively checking the Kickstarter for Farewell to Fear multiple times a day, even though I'm... Well, I hate to put it this way, but I'm just the editor on it. I'm not actually, you know... This is not my creative baby. I am basically taking the words that other people have written... And making sure that they are clear for a wider audience, and that the and that the authors are getting their message across to the people in the way that they want to get it across. Sure, but I mean, you want to sell yourself too short on that because that's um, you know you've it's yeah it's a considerable job in some cases, especially when you're dealing with someone who has a very clear vision of what they want to do. But they weren't gifted with the ability to spell, for example. Sure. Um, still, I, I admit I have a little bit of an envy for people who can have those amazing ideas and actually get them out onto paper. I mean, when I try to write, I, I get what my, my dear friend Travis calls writer's pee shy. Um, right. Uh I literally get out maybe like 300 to 500 words and then my literally brain my brain literally ceases up and I can't get out even anymore. I mean, I know it's rattling around in there, but I can't seem to make the connection between brain to fingertips to keyboard or to pen or what have you. Right. So in that case, in in that sense, it's almost like a the relationship between Salieri and Mozart if you've seen Amadeus. Yes. Um Salieri has this amazing talent to recognize the most talented and the most brilliant music he's ever heard, but he doesn't have the ability to write that music himself. Right. But he sees it in Mozart. Right. When no one else seems to be able to. Yes. Um, I almost, it's, it's, I guess you could call it an unflattering comparison. But having the ability to see that sort of talent and at least do my part to polish it and make it presentable for the world and to let the true genius of the author shine through. Yes. 
that's what satisfies me at the end of the day. Oh, and, and as it should, because it's like you say, it, having that raw, having that raw talent, um, but not being able to convey it, you might as well not have it at all. Exactly. So, so, I mean, an editor is very important in that respect. Just don't become exactly like Salieri. That would be my advice to you. Oh, um, God, no. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, oh, no. I, I, I don't get that jealous. That's, that's, a little, that's a little beyond the pale. I mean, I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. And I love that character. Yeah. I mean, but I don't think I would ever go that far. I never want to go that far. And if anybody actually does see me going that far, they literally have free reign to slap me right then and there. <laughs> So tell me a little bit more about <laughs> Farewell to Fear in terms of um, what people can expect from it that perhaps missed out on contributing to the Kickstarter, but are potential mm-hmm. customers in future. Okay. Uh, Farewell to Fear is a fantasy game that is centered around revolution. The group as a whole picks one thing about the world that they want to change by the end of the campaign. For example, uh, they want to... Uh, a good go-to example that has been used in a lot of different de- uh, descriptions of the game is, you know, eradicating slavery. Right. Or um, rediscovering this new magical race, or what have you. Right. And one of the major things that they, that is constantly discussed in the book is the... As far as the setting portion goes, it's very much described from the point of view of one person who wasn't necessarily the winner. And as we all know, the winners write the history books. So in this particular play, in this particular case, if the PCs win, they essentially get to write the history books. Um, It's the game is more focused on larger and the larger impact on the world as opposed to, I guess what we like a more personal storyline of, you know, uh, break into the dungeon, kill right. the monster, steal their stuff. Right, so it's more overarching mm-hmm. than, than that. You know, you're, you're looking at the big picture right from the get-go rather than building up to it. Right. Um, and it's kind of, and it's this sort of this all-consuming thing in your mind. Uh, David had a beautiful phrase that he used for it. Uh, punk rock tunnel vision. Right. Um, and the funny thing is, a friend of, when I told that that particular phrase to a friend of mine to try to explain the game further his definition of it was a little bit different from what I think David intended but it was very applicable if you see a lot of folks who are in the punk rock scene they have something that they're very passionate about and if for some reason somebody tries to uh, point out any fallacies in it or some, or somehow put that particular concept down in any way, they get really, really defensive about it. Right. It defines and them as a person, right? Exactly. It's it very much defines who they are and their outlook on the world. Right. So of course they're going to get very defensive about it. Sure. I can see that particular description actually fitting a character in Farewell to Fear. Right. Um. Actually. Trying to think of some other good descriptions for it. Well, here's uh, another question for you while you're mulling that over. Um, would you characterize it as a uh, story game or a simulation game or somewhere in between? Uh, oh, that's a very good question. Um, and a lot of, I would say it's more geared toward the story simply for the fact that a lot of. A lot of what you do in the particular setting is pushing the major story along. 
Right. And you're literally, a lot of the, you know, smaller aspects of it, you're kind of glossing over to kind of get to that main goal, to get to that act three. Uh, when I initially did one of the very early play tests with it, um, I think the only time that I actually did what you would call a kind of a simulation scenario was actually at act three after I'd done all the research, done all the planning for what I was going to do. And then I was actually executing the plan. Right. Um, and, and so if people wanted to give this a go, like you're planning to do some, I'm not sure if it's open play testing or closed play testing, but if people wanted to find out more information about this, now that the Kickstarter project has been funded, is there another website that they could go to, to get more information? Um, right now, most of the most of the primary information that you're going to find on the project is going to be on the Kickstarter. Uh, David Hill has been discussing it a lot over uh, Google Plus. Right. So, um, if if you are on Google Plus, you can look at his at, you can look at his account or the Machine Age Productions account. Um, he's been doing most of the discussion on it on his personal account, but he usually has all of the posts public. Right. Um, I can actually give you a link to that later if you want, so you can sure. have, so yep. listeners. Yep, we'll my show. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, I think that by now people have got a pretty good idea, you know, where you've come from and, and where you're at right now. So we're going to crack on with the questions for Inside the Roleplay Studio. And the first question is, what's your favorite book or supplement? And it doesn't have to be a game that you play currently, but just something that is a constant joy to you with regards to role-playing. Oh, that's an easy one. Um, that would be uh, Legend of the Five Rings First Edition, The Way of the Scorpion. Right. That particular book has uh, amazing fiction on it. John, uh, I am a slavering John Wick fangirl. I'm not going right. to lie. I actually right. ended up, I actually larked with him a bit in college right. just because he was living in the area and the chapter he was in was very close to mine and we ended up going to this, a lot of the same games. Right. Um, but a lot of the description, they talk about the social, the social mores of Rokugan and how the scorpion break that but still manage to follow at the same time it's that that basically their role in the empire is to be dishonorable when the other people in the empire have to stick to that honor and the concept of the scorpion clan can been can either be executed really beautifully in that i do it i do it because i have to as opposed to i I'm doing it just to be sneaky, sneaky, and just to be a dick. Right. Um, I that is a, that is a particular pet peeve of mine. Whenever I see people playing L5R, but that right. is a completely different rant. Right. But yeah, the book the- itself is absolutely gorgeous. Right. The art is really nice. Uh, the fiction supports a lot of these ideas, and there are a couple of small inside jokes. Like for more information on ninjas, go to Appendix Two or Three or whatever it was, right. and that appendix doesn't exist. Right, right. It's it was a lot of it. it they seemed like they had a lot of fun putting that particular book together, right. which is great. Yeah, that's actually my first double up um, so far in terms of favorite book because Farrell in Episode Eight said exactly the same things that uh, that you're saying here. In terms oh, of, I didn't know that. In terms of what he uh, and what he enjoyed about it, and you know, this that idea of the Scorpion Clan, you're know, like. You know, the story of the, the scorpion being carried across the, the river on the back of... I forget exactly how they now... It was the goes, frog, yeah. The frog, and, 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 and he says, you know, like, you know, why... And they get halfway across, and the scorpion stabs him, and, and the frog says, why? And it's just because that's, you know, what I, what I am. And that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Like, that's, you know, mm. this idea that if you want to 
um, when you're playing the Scorpion Clan, then you shouldn't be doing it just because. Um, right. You're there should be somebody. Right. There should be a purpose behind what you're doing. It's yes. not. It's not just being a dishonorable dick just for the sake of being a dishonorable yeah, dick. Because that's kind of what I am. No, exactly. And that's the thing about the, that I like about. I haven't played Legend of the Fire Rings very much at all, but that's the one thing that appealed to me about the Scorpion Clan. If you're going to play in a game for a long time, that's a really nice. Um, <laughs> A really nice class, I suppose, a really nice family to to a clan to belong to because you can really, if you know the game's going to go long, you can mm-hmm. really play a long game and you can build up all those favors along the way until you can mm-hmm. execute your master stroke and be the you know and be the ultimate uh, scorpion. So yeah, that's um, mm-hmm. yeah. So you should check out episode eight that you'll hear Farrell talking about that, that exact book. I will definitely have to do that then. So, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily mean you think it's badly written or you, you hate the author. or um, It just could be because it's uh, wronged you in some random way or it's a revision of a game that you really liked and now they've taken everything in and changed it and now you, you can't stand uh, it. Oh, well, that's a hard one. <laughs> there have been a couple of books that I've, that I've, I've, I've kind of said that about... Um, I, I'm it's I'm gonna I'm gonna end up going back to Legend of the Five Rings on this one. It's gonna be Legend of the Five Rings third edition revised. Right. Um, I literally cried when I read that book simply for the fact that um, a lot of the there were more typos on that in that particular book than I could count. And you know, as a, as an editor and somebody who does a lot of who as it does a lot of line editing, that is a big pet peeve of mine. Right. If, if there are a lot of spelling mistakes or grammar mistakes in your book, it tells me that you don't care. Yes. And that's the that's the impression I got when I first looked at these pages. And I literally, I think that's the only book that I've ever physically thrown in anger. Right. Yeah, that must be one of the, the hard things about being an, an editor. I was talking to uh, Lenny uh, about it. Um, yeah, Lenny's a good guy. And, and he was saying, and I was saying to me, like, do you wish that you could turn off your game design and mind that you're able to stop, stop peering under the hood while you're, while you're playing? And he said, well, he actually enjoys it, so he, mm-hmm. he finds it difficult to do so. As an editor, do you find the same problem? It's hard not to, you know, it's hard not to read something and, um, and edit it at the same time? Um, sometimes it, it's difficult, but more often than not, as far as the books that I particularly read go, they've usually had a good pass with a really good editor, and so I don't have to do that. Uh, there have been a couple of times, though, when I've been, you know, clicking along, really enjoying what I'm reading, and then suddenly I literally get completely thrown off the rails by a typo. Right. I don't know if it's just because I'm a, a perfectionist in nature, or if it really does disturb my enjoyment of reading just to see that. Right. Um, and actually, this is part of the reason why sometimes I have a hard time watching movies. Right. I took a screenwriting course in college. Right. I, 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 took, I, took the, I took the first two courses in this three-course series. Right. I couldn't take the third one because I had to work on my thesis. Right. And now, because I'm familiar with the normal formula that a screenplay goes through, you know, at what certain points that a certain plot twist is supposed to happen, right. or a certain push for the story to go in one direction or the other right. when it's supposed to happen, I can see that coming. Right. If the movie, if the movie script really follows that formula, right. 
And sometimes it becomes a little bit more difficult for me to enjoy it simply for the fact that, yes, I know I can see that coming. I know exactly what you're doing, and I'm not falling for that trick. Right, sure. I feel kind of bad about saying this, but I kind of felt that way about Hugo. Right. It's the most recent Martin Martin Scorsese flick. Everybody has been talking about, oh, it's brilliant. It is a beautiful tribute to cinema. And yes, absolutely. It has a wonderful tip of the hat to a lot of the early cinema and whatnot. But as far as the actual plot goes, you can see exactly where it's going. And you can can see exactly where the heartstrings have been grabbed and where they're supposed to be tugging. And it loses, and for me, it loses that effect. Right. But that is discussing something completely off the rails from role-playing. <laughs> no, no that, but that's, that's accurate too, I suppose, because in a role-playing game, I know that in, in my book, which I'm now a little bit afraid to, to give to you, but um, <laughs> you'll, you'll get the PDF, PDF of it anyway, and you can just like, keep your thoughts to yourself. Thank you very much. Um, but <laughs> but with, when it comes to a role-playing game, you know, I, I talk a lot about this, that sort of idea of the structure of, of a game to make sure that it's compelling and sort of like... Um, rules that you can follow to make sure that your story hangs together and is it's cohesive and, and follows a a path that people are, you know, comfortable with and, and can make it easy, at least initially. When you're learning the rules, you know, it's always best to uh to follow them and then when you get more comfortable you can start to diverge from that. But um do you find that when you play in role playing games that spills over or once you're actually in the story it's sufficiently, you know, air quotes real that you don't expect it to follow? the standard uh, screenplay um, sort of path? Uh, It really depends on the group of people you're with. If I'm with a particularly skilled GM who knows how to craft the environment to really immerse the players in it, you know, giving just enough detail, but not so much that I'm literally getting, you know, an encyclopedia of what just, what this room looks like. Um, At that point, you know, at that point, people just fall over and fall asleep because right. they're bored from all the description. Right. But like I said, if, if you've got a particularly skilled GM, if you've got a really good group of players, sometimes that, that formulaic approach to telling the story doesn't matter, especially if, they, especially if they know exactly what buttons to push to make you care. Right. Um, one of the one of the storytellers that I actually played with back towards I think sort of the very end of college, he knew exactly what buttons to push that I would literally be in tears by the end of a role playing session, even if something happened that didn't even involve my character. Right. Because he knew exactly what buttons to push to make the not only the characters react, but to make the players react. Right. And yeah, it may seem like a dirty trick to some, but if it enhances the overall gameplay experience for the people who are involved, then yeah, let them play the dirty trick. It's fine. Right, for sure. Um, But if you can actually see the dirty trick for what it is, it's just kind of sad. Right. Um, I can go on a rant about this, especially involving the most recent uh, Avengers movie. Right. Um where Loki comes comes right up and calls Black Widow a mewling quim. Right. Um, a lot of people have gotten really upset because it's a gendered insult. Sure. I see it as a dirty storytelling trick. He's just basically trying to vilify Loki even more. Right. And by using that particular gendered slur, he's pissing off the feminists. Yes. Yep. So he's just basically, he's basically making Loki look like a bad guy. I see it as a story trick for, for what it is. And I'm like, 
And so I'm kind of doing the slow golf clap over here. It's like, okay, so you know how to use the cheap tricks to get us to care. Sure. Great. Where's the real story? Right. Yeah, that that can be. Uh, yeah, I, I guess um, for you at least, I'm, I'm. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm not as versed in in, in that type of uh, analysis of, of what it is that I'm that I'm watching. But certainly in another aspect, you know, like it's it's a fine line. If you love something and learn mm-hmm. too much about it, it can actually you know remove that fourth wall and, and actually reduce your enjoyment of something that you may absolutely. Uh, and, and I drive my wife crazy with that that same. Thing. So, <laughs> So I've learned to uh, keep my, my mouth shut, but uh, be yeah, my right. particular least favourite film recently has been uh, Hall Pass, and I'm not I refuse to watch um, what to expect when you're expecting for the same reason, just like cashing in on those uh-huh. terrible tropes of of, uh, of people is just yeah I can't I can't do it. So I just smile yeah. and, and laugh at the appropriate places and quietly seize beneath the surface but that's just between <laughs> you and me and, and the listeners and probably my wife will find it anyway but anyway, so <laughs> changing tack completely, um, are there any games or supplements that you're particularly look for, looking forward to other than Farewell to Fear of course Oh, um not at the moment unfortunately, I've been I'm not as well versed as at some of the games coming out as I really should be Right. Um, I've heard a lot of talk about the next edition of D&D, but I'm really not all that excited about it. I've never understood the appeal beto- behind D&D. Right. But then again, I think that a lot of that comes from where I started as a gamer. Sure. So I don't have what I guess would be considered the standard gateway drug, quote-unquote, right. Right. for most gamers. Right. And... Yeah, I hear a lot of talk about it, but it just—it's—it's it's kind of like literally at the back of my mind. It's like, yeah, it's going on, but um, I'm not absolutely, you know, chomping at the bit to go get the book. Right. So, having started where you you did, I think probably the, the same thing is true. But you know, for for a lot of people, um, you know, the games that they associate with. Um, or that they play when when they're starting out. Some people will stick with that, and their you know their first love, if you like, sort of becomes their soulmate. And this is an idea I've floated with previous guests, which is like this idea of having a role-playing soulmate, a game that just gets you and you you always enjoy it, um, mm. no matter what. Is there any game that fits that for you? Absolutely, Vampire the Masquerade is always going to have a soft spot in my heart, right. simply for the fact that it's the game I started with. Right. Um, when I was originally when I was. When I originally found out what Vampire the Masquerade was, right. uh, it was literally from this giant brick of a book by J. Gordon Melton. It's uh, the Vampire Encyclopedia. Right. So it had a listing on the main game, on a lot of the clans, on how they interact with each other. And I found myself turning back to those particular sections, even though I never played the game before. Right. And I kind of wondered how that would work and it was and so I wanted to play that particular game for quite a while and then I finally got my opportunity to in college and the rest is history right and so you play the old world of darkness stuff did you ever play in a race game no but I really really wanted to because of yeah probably because of the reason that you're about to discuss right now involving having another player play kind of your specter right that the that kind of that yeah. Darker aspect of yourself. Yeah. And also I would the, love to play that. Yeah, yeah. And likewise, and you know, I, I, again, I, I'm repeating myself, but for the benefit of perhaps anybody that hasn't heard, um, you know, like my feeling is that that was ahead of its time. You were when you had the 
um, nowadays you've got a lot of interaction between characters in the story games fiasco and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth where you know like there is you know you are creating bonds between players and to a degree you're helping to author each other's stories and and that was you know must be 15 years ago now almost that mm-hmm. that exact same thing was happening in in wraith with the uh, with the shadow but I just never saw it um, Mm-hmm. Never saw it in action, so I'm really hoping that one day I'll be able to get somebody on the show that was right into Wraith and, and played that out, and maybe has played some of the newer newer games with that collaboration and can can compare and contrast mm-hmm. for us. Um, yeah. So I would. I, I'm I'm not entirely sure that I, I'm still not entirely sure or convinced that the gaming world at large is ready for a game like Wraith. I mean, you see a lot of folks who are playing Fiasco. And a lot of the other story games, and they're great. I love it. But there are a lot of people, unfortunately, who still kind of look down on story gamers, and quite frankly, I think that's their loss, but that's just me. For sure. Yeah, uh, I've got no time for, for exclusivity yeah. or, or role-playing snobbery in any Absolutely shape not. or form. Yeah. I mean, there's, as I've said before, there are so few of us, you know, you just can't. Mm-hmm. Just enjoy the fact that somebody else gets what you're doing. Maybe they're uh-huh. doing it differently Absolutely. to you, but just, anyway, yeah, that, that drives me drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. So, if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? I would have to say I would strictly be a player because I am a sucky GM. I have tried. Unfortunately, for some reason... I do better, I guess, on a as on a one-on-one basis when I'm talking with people regarding gaming or in a scene or whatnot. So if you put me in a larger scene, I usually I'm the person who kind of falls quiet, right. who ends up just kind of you know watching while other people you know chew the scenery. Right. Meanwhile, if you get me alone, if you get me or my character alone for something, I will talk your ear off. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm actually running into this right now with the, with the with the lark character I'm playing, right. and I specifically took a flaw to represent that, which is the shy flaw. Right. So you get her in larger groups, and she just kind of you know falls right. back, is really quiet. Right. But you get her alone, and she just kind of starts spouting off about all of these things, and you're like, why the hell do you not talk about this in larger groups? Right. Because larger groups scare me. That's right. Yeah. And look, I've got a character trait. It says it right there. That's why. Uh, yeah, and and actually, I'm fairly I'm fairly outgoing as a person. I mean, you get me talking, and you cannot shut me up. Um, but as far as you know, somebody trying to direct the story and ensure the fun of other players, I'm not as. A, I'm not as good at that. If you want a GM who's, you know, kind of, who's, you know, cheering the players on from the sidelines and encouraging them to do what they want to do, I am that kind of GM, absolutely. Right. Right. Yeah, that, that's just, and that sort of comes towards that sort of fiasco type uh, type story, or even that sort of style of gaming where you let the let the players' background you know tell a story, and you just answer mm-hmm. the questions like a Lady Blackbird type scenario, right? Where you're just asking mm-hmm. questions and letting people um, mm-hmm. fill in the blanks for you. So, yeah. so um, when you are going to be a GM, what sort of preparation do you do? Well, usually ahead of time, I want to know who the characters are that I'm going to be essentially mucking around with. Right. Um, I want to know where they came from, who they are, what their particular belief structure is, um, where there may be point of contention with other PCs, uh, things they feel passionately about. So I can 
literally pull those, you know, storytelling dirty tricks, pick, right. pick up those things that I know are going to be hot buttons for them mm-hmm. and force them to confront them. Because right. usually that ends up being the best story. Oh, for sure, because, yes. Because you basically take that aspect of them, you can make them confront it, and they become either a better person for it, or they fall victim to that character flaw, and they kind of go tumbling into this downward spiral of angst and horribleness. And I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing, isn't it? As long as you've got yeah. the players invested, you know, they're going to have a, a good time. And it's going to be a pleasant experience for their characters. But if the player themselves is invested, then it's, then it's going to be a good time for everybody, whether you're experiencing Absolutely. it or just, or just watching it happen to somebody else and quietly laughing yeah. to yourself. And a lot of the players that I love playing with are gluttons for punishment when it comes to their characters. Yes. Um, I mean, yeah, occasionally there will be one or two things that are absolutely off the table. Yeah. Like, like in some cases, you know, have be, having rape played out at the table sure. or, you know, bestiality or sure. abuse of children or what, what have you. Right. That's that Lions and Veils thing. Right. Ron Edwards' um, mm-hmm. idea. Right. And so, aside from... Although I'm actually interested for this, because I didn't actually ask this before, um, how long do you role-play for, um, and how often? And also, um, how long would you would a LARPing session last? Apparently, your LARPing is, is once a week. You're saying on every Friday. But how long does that last? And then also, how often do you get to role-play, and for how long? Um, as far as my LARP sessions go, they're usually about once a week. They usually run for about four hours, as far as the actual in-character time goes. Right. Um, usually there's an hour ahead of time for character preparation, getting your sheet, talking to people about things that might be going on, that you uh, having an in-character conversation that would have happened in downtime, but you didn't have time to actually go through. Right. Um, and then after the game is over... There's usually like maybe like half an hour to an hour, just kind of winding down, um, giving people role playing nominations that basically gets them more XP for just essentially doing an amazing job role playing. Right. And then usually there's the late night Denny's run afterwards. Right. Which is where we do a lot of our our, our, our socializing, where a lot of the inside jokes come from. Right. And that's I guess that's you know that's all part of this social aspect of, right. of role playing. Is it that? Part of the role-playing experience is the chatting beforehand and the doing whatever it is afterwards, right? Like that's part of creating that sense of community. But that also goes a little bit towards that idea of this geek social fallacies thing where, you know, Sean and I were discussing, and it's come up a couple of other times, where, you know, you... There are so few people that are interested in, in role-playing, but it's something that you really love, and what sort of responsibility do you have to include people that, for right. whatever reason, you know, rub you uh, up the wrong way? Yeah. Um, there have been a lot of people that I've, that I've actually talked to and role-played with in the past where, in character, our characters get along great. Out of character, I want absolutely nothing to do with them because I think they're a scumbag. Right. Um, that's going to happen. I mean, it's just a natural. It's it's a natural thing to just have that instance where yes, you do have a common interest with somebody, but other than that, that's really the only thing you have in common is people. Right. Um. A, I have a really good example of this. There's actually a, a. I consider him a friend. I don't consider him a very close friend. Sure. But he's somebody who uh, I talk with a lot. He's a fellow gamer. Right. Uh, we ha- we do have a lot of geeky things in common. However, as far as my own politi- my, as far as my own politics go, I'm fairly liberal. 
Right. This guy has died in the wool tea party, and right. he will let everybody know it, and he will get to the point where it's obnoxious, right. and that, and it gets to the point where I just don't want to spend time with him, sure. because that's all Leo talks about. Right. Um. So yeah, it's gonna happen. There are gonna be people you just don't get along with, even if you do have something in common with them. Right. This is this is normal as yes. far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah, for sure. So what about role playing? Pen and paper on the table. Um, I don't do that anywhere near as much as I would like. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, right now where I live, I, it's a little bit more difficult to get down to the folks that I do normally play with. I'm actually living about an hour away from most of my major role-playing buddies. Right. That's hopefully going to be fixed in the future. It's just, it's literally just a quirk of geography at this point. Um... In a perfect world. Yeah, I know. Um, I would probably have like maybe one or two weekly groups. Right. Just kind of a pencil and paper type thing. Yep. With whatever works. Right. And just the same amount of time, about four hours? Uh, usually, yeah. Um, usually there's like a break in the middle for, you know, bathroom breaks or what have you. Or, you know, we're getting food or something. Yes. But um, I think as far as my own attention span goes, the longest I could probably go as far as a role-playing session is maybe six hours. Right. If I try to go anything longer than that, it gets to the point where I get tired, I get grumpy, my blood sugar goes to hell, and right. I just, I as a player become absolutely horrible to deal with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Snickers I, I, Bar advertisement. Yeah. Turn into Roseanne Arnold or Roseanne Barr or whatever she goes by now. Or uh, Joe Pesci or I forget what the other ones are. But are you familiar with that oh, commercial? Yeah. Yes, I'm very familiar with those commercials. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. This is part of the, yeah, this is a part of the reason why if, if, you're gonna, if you know you're going to be hunkering down for a long-term game session, have a snack available. It doesn't matter if it's healthy or not. Just have something yeah. to... You're not, so it's that you can non, so we're not going to have to deal with you when you hit that blood sugar crash. That, that's right, yeah. We're not, we're not uh, advocating uh, Snickers here. We're not paid by Snickers to talk about Snickers, but if Snickers is listening and would like to sponsor the show, then uh, I'm, I'm happy to push candy bars. Um, yeah. Mm, Snickers, my favorite. Um, oh, that's, part the, that's part of the reason why I personally, you know, try to have like a small snack or something and like a bottle of water at the gaming table just because, well... You can have all the fun you want, pretending to be something something you're not, but you still have to tend to your bodily needs. Right, sure. Yep, good advice. I'm, I, we always have a lot of uh, candy bars. And, oh, do you have any... Um, here's a question for you when it comes to role-playing. Do, is there any um, rules about uh, bringing, bringing, bringing snacks? Do you have any, any snack rules? Used to be when I was at university and when I was out, out of university is that some of the games that I played and the rule was if you're running the game and hosting it, which often went together... But if you're running and or hosting, you don't have to bring the snacks. Everybody else, if you're providing the fun, they have to provide the, uh, the snacks. Do you have any rules like that? Um, not in particular. Uh, usually it varies by, uh, varies by group. Um, I've had some cases where the person who's hosting the game says, I'm hosting it, you guys bring snacks if you want it. Um, I've had cases where, you know, the person who is hosting the group, who is hosting the gathering or DMing has actually, you know, cooked dinner for us, right. which is absolutely amazing and wonderful, and if you find a GM like that, hold on to them and do not let them go. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's all part of that social experience, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, for my part, when I can afford it, I try to bring, I try to bring, you know, some sort of snack or something to the table right. 
that everybody can enjoy. Yes. Which is sometimes kind of, kind of difficult because in a lot of geek circles, you run into a lot of really weird food allergies. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that is true. So, um, how do you feel about males playing females? As long as they can do it respectfully, more power to them. I mean, I've seen a lot of cases where you have that male player who's playing a female character specifically so they can use that opportunity to act like their favorite girl in their favorite porno. Um, That is a little bit disrespectful because they're basically not playing a character, but they're playing a caricature. If you're going to play a character, no matter what gender it is, male, female, transgender, one way or the other, gender fluid, gender queer, what have you, treat them like a person. Right. And it doesn't matter what gender you are as a player and what gender your character is. Just play the character as a person. Right. In some systems, yes, it does actually encourage playing more of a caricature, but I think that caricature is more along the lines of a specific character type, like your four-color comic book hero, as opposed to, you know, a specific gender stereotype. Right. So do you think that if you are playing a female as a male, if you're going to get something out of that experience, then having it requires a GM that's able to relate to you authentically as a female? I'm not entirely sure I grokked that question properly. <laughs> um, if, you, if you are playing a female and your GM is, you know, for whatever reason, is not particularly empathic or mm-hmm. hasn't had a lot of experience with women in their lives or mm-hmm. whatever it might happen to be. Um, if you're playing a female or you're playing any type of character, you're exploring that character in, in mm-hmm. one way or another. And if you're not exploring the, the fact that they're female, then, um, you know, I, I'm, then there's not necessarily any reason to be a female. So if you're going to play a female as a male, and it's not one of the situations where, you know, that type of character is only available to females and mm-hmm. female characters, then um, if you're going to play a female, then there's something about being a female. Like, you, you're doing that for, for a reason. And, and that's absolutely fine. But, if you are playing a female, does it require your GM to be capable of relating to you in an authentic fashion in order for you to gain anything from that choice of being a female? Well, I would certainly hope so. I mean, I mean, if you're taking a GM who's basically looking at, you know, this guy at the end of the table who's playing a female character, and the guy's, you know, maybe, you know, a little heavy set and he's got a big bushy beard. Right. <clears throat> if, but they but you're but the player is still playing the character fairly Authentically to a female experience and not treating them as, you know, a big boobed caricature. Sure. Yep. Um, <clears throat> it requires it, it requires not only for the GM to have to suspend a little disbelief, but the players at the table as well. And so along those lines then, do you think that there's cathars- genuine catharsis available through role playing? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um I've as, as I mentioned earlier, I have been reduced to tears because of something that has happened to my character or to somebody else's character in the course of a role-playing session. And I've had that happen to me when watching movies, too, or reading books. Uh, it's, it's a very similar effect when you can actually, you know, get in touch with the emotions that are being portrayed either by the players or the actors or the characters or what have you. 
and that uh, that catharsis is absolutely available. And do you think it's more accessible LARPing than it is tabletop uh, role playing? Not necessarily. Um, when you're dealing with a LARP situation, you, there is a little bit more physical acting involved. But I've had a fairly intense role playing session just sitting at the table with somebody, as opposed to, uh, as a, a, in a tabletop setting that. I could easily have had an LARP setting, and it would have had about the same emotional impact. Right. Yeah, I was the just pop, wondering if the, the kinesthetic component is... Helps. Go ahead and say it yeah, again. a lot of the body language certainly helps as well, but when I, personally, when I roleplay at a table or if I roleplay in a LARP setting, I'm usually going to talk with my hands. I'm going to gesticulate. I'm going to convey a great deal through my body language. That is, how, that is my personal style of roleplay. Right. Um... That's what I was leaning towards with a, that kinesthetic expo, um, component, and the, and obviously the cosplay that goes along with it. Whether that has you know more creates more of an impact than doing it just at the table. I'm going to default again to this is going to sound like a cop out answer, but it really does depend on the group you're with. I mean, because you could have you know a bunch of great actors sitting around a table, and it could have the same emotional impact as you know your standard you know WWE school of acting that you get out of LARP sometimes. Right, right. And it doesn't have the same emotional impact even though the content of the scene is the same. Sure. I'll, I'll allow that. Um, <laughs> so, so do you... <laughs> so do, or do you or should GMs fudge roll? Well, it honestly depends on how much the players and the GMs have discussed ahead of time whether or not they actually want, you know, a certain outcome to occur from a scene. Right. I mean, if they're just going to literally, you know, go go into a dungeon and fight this evil, horrible thing with, you know, and not really, and with their main goal is, you know, just to get their stuff. Right. If they're, you know, if they're going in without a plan and abs- and just going. Oh, we'll we'll make it through. We're the PCs. We're not going to yes. die. Yes. Then no, don't fudge the rolls. They're no, being fucking no, no. absolutely not. Right. Um, but if you actually have players who are genuinely taking time to think about the consequences of their actions and think things through and actually have a plan that's well thought out and I guess negotiate with the GM ahead of time, exactly what they're looking for from a particular scene, then at that point, there really isn't a need to fudge the rolls. Right. Sure. I mean, there's not even a need to roll, right? Well, in some cases, you, well, in some cases, there is a little bit of a, an aspect of chance that you want in there. It's like, yes, I do want this particular outcome to occur. That is ideally what I'm going for for the end outcome. But there's still, you know, the course of actually getting to that final outcome. Right. Yeah, the particulars of it. Right. Right. And then that's when the randomness has a has a role to play for sure. Absolutely. So you know when you're so if you know you you have a particular end goal, that can also change what a failed role means. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, what's the best and or most inspiring role playing film or TV show for you? Something that you watched and you went, "Wow, that's." That's really cool. I'd like to be there doing that right now. It doesn't have to be about role-playing. Just something that you watched and you wanted to incorporate in a role-playing game. 
Um, it's a, it's a, actually it was a, a one season series that ended up on NBC called Kings. Um, it's it was basically a mo- a modern setting retelling of the old uh, story of uh, David, the, the biblical story of David, who you know slew Goliath and was uh, interacting with with King Saul and what have you. And all the various interactions there, but you t- it, it basically took a lot of aspects of modern day life, modern day technology, and the royal court, and how it interacts with normal politics, and, and with the modern aesthetic to it. As far as a lot of the, you know, the costumings and whatnot, I just said, "Oh my god, I want to be in that world. I want to play that game." Right. And it only lasted for one season. It only lasted for one season, unfortunately. I was very, very sad about that. I, I, I watched the whole thing, and then I found out it didn't get renewed, and I, I think that was one of the few times where I actually cried about a series not getting renewed. Is that right? <laughs> yes. No, I don't think I've ever been quite that emotionally invested in television, but uh, I think mm-hmm. the way that television is viewed in North America is a lot different to the way it was viewed when, when I was growing up. Well, a little bit of background. The first, when I grew up, there were only two channels, so we only really got the creme de la creme of, of anything, and we never got it in the same year, so if a show got cancelled after one year, we never saw it at all. Now with satellite television and so forth, it's changed considerably, but... Um, this idea that a television program doesn't go until it's finished is relatively new to me, and my my wife is always looking up this: is this being renewed? Is that being renewed? And initially, I had no idea what that really meant. And I'm not much of a television person anyway, so it didn't really right. make a big difference to me. But I can see how, if you become invested in the characters of, mm-hmm. of a show, you know that would be a real loss. You wouldn't actually get to see that that story play out. It'd be like starting a really cool book and then discovering that the back two thirds of it is missing and there's no way and, and not only is it missing but nobody else has the book and you can't get it exactly um, I'm I'm really weird as far as what I wish I could see as far as television I mean you see a lot of these TV shows that you know they go on and the, they either go on ad infinitum and it gets to the point where the writers are having a hard time making the characters interesting or giving them thing, good things to do I mean and you're going to run into that even in, you know, a role-playing campaign where you've got these characters you absolutely love, but then you start, you know, running into, okay, we've done this plot before, and it gets really, really boring really, really quickly. Right. And then you have the, and then you have the exact opposite of that spectrum where you have these characters you absolutely love and adore, and the series doesn't get renewed, and so you, you're left with these characters you absolutely love, but you don't know what happens next, and it drives you up a tree. Right. For sure. Um, and so did that inspire you to perhaps write a game that, that filled out the rest of that story there, a fan fiction, if you will? Sort of, yeah. Um, one of the things that really caught me about that particular series was the aesthetic. When you're dealing with, you know, a royal court as far, as far as the politics are concerned, but it still has a lot of modern sensibilities. Sure. Um, I have actually started, I actually have kind of started taking some notes as far as building a game that has that sort of aesthetic feel. But now I'm just trying to basically build out the culture and why things are the way they are and kind of start exploring different themes with that. Right. Um, I've, I, that is nowhere near remotely anywhere that I would actually be able to share it with a wider audience. Sure. Um, but um, maybe it's part- some catharsis and just writing it for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. 
But going back to the point I was trying to make, uh, what I would love to see out of television these days is having a story and and if it's you know if it's a one season story, a two season story, a three season story, what have you, writing the story and making sh- and when the story is done, then the show is done. Right. I mean, you see that a lot in in Japan with lots of various anime. I love that formula simply for the fact that when the story is over, you don't feel like you're missing out on what these characters could possibly be doing. Right. There's a closure there. Yes. And I would love to see that more in modern television. Yeah. That was one of the provisors, I think, if I remember my story correctly, that Peter Jackson um, had on making The Lord of the Rings. He said, I'm not going to make one and see how it goes. You've got to give me money for all three, and then I can make right. all three of them. And then, and that, you know, that was, I mean, ultimately it turned out to not be a risk for the, the, the uh, mm-hmm. movie studios because it, it worked out. But good for him for doing that, right? Like, if you're going to start Absolutely. telling the story and take the whole, tell the whole thing, right? Didn't they do something similar uh, with uh, the Harry Potter series as well? Oh, I, I don't, I don't know, but, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, yeah. they're, they're gold anyway. It's probably like not a very risky thing. Like, oh, sure, yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. No, I think we'll we'll go with that. But yeah, I, I mean, yeah, and they did. The, they probably did the same thing with Twilight too, much yeah. to my chagrin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, changing gear a little bit here. Who <laughs> is your favorite villain and why? And you can't use the exec that canned the uh, King's show. Oh no, no, absolutely not. Simply for the fact that with that particular show. There were so many different shades of gray. There really wasn't a really well-defined, you know, mustache-twirling villain. Right. Um, I was thinking about the exec that canceled the show. Well, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I must have missed that. I'm, I'm personally a big fan of villains in general just because they usually get the best lines. Right. Um, <laughs> and now it's just it's like, now I can only pick one? Crap. Well, you can, you can, <laughs> if you're prepared to justify it, you can pick as many as you, as many mm-hmm. as you like. I'm going to go with Akasha from Queen of the Damned. Not the movie, the book. Right. Uh, simply for the fact that the movie was trying to basically squish two books into one and it didn't do it very well. Right. Um, but she has this amazing font of mystical power and she knows it. And she's had all of this time to see what humanity does to itself. And so she's made this informed decision that humanity's just got to go. Right. Uh, they've... They've... declared war on themselves. They've killed themselves over the most petty reasons. And quite frankly, their blood tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> that too. But, she, but she's... She's got this untouchable, all-powerful vibe to her, but there's a very solid reason and thought process behind why she's doing what she's doing. Right. And so, over the weeks, we've developed this, this idea that there are basically four types of, uh, that there are four types of villains. And and you can tell me if you agree that if, uh, if she fits into one of the four, but she's... Um, and one of the archetypes I've used are Hannibal Lecter, uh, Hans Gruber, the Joker, and Lex Luthor. Um, and it seems to me that um, she is a little bit, a little bit uh, like the Joker, a little bit like um, Hannibal Lecter, in as much as there are things about her 
that it's possible to admire. Right? She's mm-hmm. smart, she's powerful, all that type of stuff. Right. Um, but Hannibal Lecter, obviously, you can't agree with his final goal. Right? Like, right. What is the, the, the thing that he actually wants the most is something that you can't get behind. Now, mm-hmm. Hans Gruber, you may not agree with what it is that he's doing or how he's going about it, but you can absolutely get behind this idea of, of having vast quantities of cash and the freedom that it allows for you. Right. And then you've got the Joker who's, whose ultimate goal is unfathomable. You know, you mm-hmm. can admire the way that he's played by Sir Heath Ledger in the in, in the movie, but Absolutely. the actual character himself is virtually impossible to identify with because mm-hmm. you the mindset's so alien. That, that's right, right. And then and then lastly, you've got Lex Luthor, who is really only a villain because the story is told through Superman's eyes. Yeah. And so, would you say that she's more like? Um, Lex Luthor or more like uh, Hannibal Lecter or more like the Joker of those, of those three? Because she seems to have elements of, of all three. I mean, I, I've got an idea of where, where I would put her, but for yourself, uh-huh. what is it about her that appeals to you? Well, I definitely would not put her in the same category as Lex Luthor, simply for the fact that she's not just there just to be the villain, just because Lestat is the hero. Right. Yes, Lestat is the hero. The cocky brat prince who you just want to strangle is the hero. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, I was thinking more along the lines of she's being like Lex Luthor in as much as if the story was told from her perspective, she would actually be right. I wouldn't go that far. Right. But then again, I have kind of a human-centric view. I kind of like, you know, I kind of like living and, you know, yeah, having yeah, the blood in my veins and, you know, having a pulse and all that Yeah, absolutely. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Agreed. Um Unfortunately, I'm not very familiar with Hans Gruber, so I'm probably going to default to the Hannibal Lecter school on this one. Well, Hans Gruber is just, he's the, the bad guy from uh, Die Hard, and he's got a, a cunning plan, mm-hmm. uh, which in this case was able to fail, but um, he's got a cunning plan, and his ultimate goal is to have vast quantities of cash. And although you can't get behind what he did, you can admire his craftiness in the way that he achieves it, and you can identify with his with his final goal, but I don't think it would be possible to identify with her final goal, as you're saying, like being alive, so that's yeah. sort, of, sort of rules it out, but yeah. yeah. And so I think, yeah, I, I agree with you, I think she's sort of yeah. in the Hannibal Lecter camp. Yeah, this. simply for the fact that I don't know if I can necessarily say that some of the things she does are particularly, you know, crafty or cunning, and admittedly, in perspective, the destruction of mankind versus a giant pile of cash. Yes. It's a slightly more profound end goal. Yes, sure. I would think. Yeah, okay. I hadn't really thought about the terms of the end goal in terms of how profound it is mm-hmm. on a, in a relative scale. But yeah, I think that um, money is far more surface, but I think also perhaps more, you may be able to identify with it more. But anyway, okay, good. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have any uh, dice superstitions? <laughs> I don't actually. Um, simply for the fact that in my own personal experience, it doesn't matter what I use, whether it's, you know, physical dice in my hand or a pre-programmed die roller or what have you, I always end up on the exact extremes right. of, of the probability scale. I will either roll absolutely perfect or absolute crap. Right. This happened to me in the first playtest I did for Farewell to Fear. Right. Um... And there were a couple of instances where, you know, I had to roll a D20. Right. Like, the first two rolls were natural 20s, both times. Right. 
And then the next roll I had to roll with the D20 was a one. Right. And so it's and either so a I, rainy day or a, or a perfectly sunny day, but there's never any sort of like overcast in the middle of the road. It's either glory or uh, or death. Pretty much, yeah. Or it or I can be, you know, like one step away from succeeding. Right. Or you know, just or barely succeed by the skin of my teeth by like a margin of one. Right. And it's never anywhere. It's like either failing miserably, just barely failing, just barely succeeding, or succeeding spectacularly. It's right. never in between. It's right. Well, that sounds like it's the, the, it sounds pretty exciting rather than just being mediocre <laughs> the whole time. So, so I think yeah. that would be that'd be good because it's it's fun either way, right? You're either right, fabulous absolutely. or you're uh, or it's a constant struggle. But either way, you're engaged, which is which is great. So, yeah, and I don't know how I do it either. It's just it just. It just falls that it's way. way. Well, it's the whole thing about dice, isn't it? I, I know, right? <laughs> so if, if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? As in, like, you could personally actually become that person in the game. It's not like you can, you know, roll up a character and do that because you could do that anyway. But suddenly, I, poof, you were actually a character in a game, a setting that you enjoyed. Um, I would have to say Scorpion Clan Courtier and Legends of the Five Rings. Because I, I understand the reasons why they do what they do. And until they're called upon by their clan to do something horrible and dishonorable and downright shitty, um, they're just a normal samurai. Right. Or are they? No, they are. <laughs> or are they? Uh, the way I play them, they are. And actually, I've, I have quite a few stories where I've played the Scorpion character who's, you know, the perfectly normal samurai until they have to do something absolutely horrible. And then it scares people at my table. Good. Because when I go dark, I go dark. Right, absolutely. Yeah, th- and like that, I think that Farrell has said the, said the similar sort of thing, you know, like it's a matter of building everything up to the point where you can, you know, suddenly flick that switch and, and then you become, you know, your, your true self is revealed, but by that point it's too late for anybody to do anything about it. Exactly. You've whipped the carpet out from underneath them and it's, yeah, mm-hmm. that's nothing more satisfying than that I would imagine. I've not done it myself, but I can see, you know, having that long game and just putting yeah. all of your ducks in a row and then and then suddenly mm-hmm. revealing your plan would be very satisfying. Yeah, and there's also that internal conflict with the whole concept of honor. Right. Um, actually, this is, funnily enough, this is actually something that that uh, Sean Nittner discussed in, in his interview with you, is having, you know, your personal feelings on something and then having, you know, the orders from your daimyo. Right. And that's how they conflict and how you have to reconcile that at the end of the day. Mm. And and that, that, that internal conflict also has a lot of appeal for me. And it's especially striking when you're dealing with the Scorpion Clan. Right. Yeah, that's just keeping it interesting for yourself, right? Ultimately, that's, what, it, that's what it's about, right? Like having a, a character Absolutely. that you love to play and has, has lots of dimensions to it, for sure. Oh, yeah. So what's your role-playing elevator pick and your go-to example? Like if I'm talking, so basically if I'm talking about my role-playing experience with somebody who's not a role-player. Yeah, so somebody says, hey, Renee, what are you doing this evening? You say, hey, I'm going role-playing. And they say, role-playing, what's that? And you say? Um, it's very similar to improv acting, actually, uh, I, except that I have a pre-established character, and I essentially get to write the script as I go. Um... Good. I guess that would be that would be sort of sounds like a perfect example for yeah. somebody from an improv background. But what if it was just some uh, person that you had, uh, maybe somebody that you went to school with, you were discussing it at a say a high school reunion for whatever reason, and somebody that you didn't mm. have a background in um, mm. 
didn't have a background in, in theatre or even in, in improv or anything like that? Mm. Or have you not really been in that situation? Um, usually people who aren't really all that involved in theatre or improv do understand the pitch that I just gave. They can because they understand the concept of a script. Right. They understand they understand the concept of playing of playing a character. Right. Um as far it's simply because that you've got this large culture involving movies and actors and characters and whatnot. They understand that. Right. Most most of your most of your general people, like your man on the street, do, does understand that. You can't sure you deal with a lot of people who in a lot of instances where it seems like people themselves are not very intelligent, but when you talk to people one-on-one, they're actually pretty smart. Right. It's, you know, a person is smart. People are dumb. You'll, right. you'll hear that a lot. That's, yeah, that's the, that's the whole, um, what's mm-hmm. it called, the genius of the mob or the... Um, uh, never understood, under, never underestimate the stupidity of people in large groups. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah that's... <laughs> <laughs> that's the, it's sort of the antithesis of the. What is it? There's a special thing, you know, like when you, for example, when you get uh, when you're at a concert and the person, like the the, the singer or whoever it might happen to be, sort of mm-hmm. entices the crowd to sing along, or the crowd just does it all by themselves. But when you get fifty thousand people all singing along, all the flats and all the sharps cancel out till you generate this perfectly in tune note. And right. the same thing is true with that. Um, you know, when you're playing, who wants to be a millionaire? And they, they, they poll the crowd, right? All the people that know nothing are cancelled out by all the people that know nothing but in a different direction. And so ultimately right. you're going to end up, on average, with the, with the, with the best answer. But um, Not always. But, <laughs> no, not, all, not always. <laughs> uh, I, I, I point you to Exhibit A, the lynch mob. Yes. Um. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So here's a chance for you to put together all the answers that you've, uh, you've given so far and, and to show your... Uh, your role-playing credibility. Totaling 100. Uh, system plus GM plus players. You've got 100 points to spread between them. How do you spread them in terms of relative importance? I'm going to have to go 50% players, 30% GM, 20% system, simply for the fact that I've seen various groups who... It doesn't matter what system they're playing. They're amazing players on their own, and they can turn even the most mundane, number-crunchy system that you would consider absolutely boring into something amazing and fun. Um, But obviously, you can have somebody who wants to run a game, but the game doesn't exist without the players, which is why I weight them so heavily. Um... However, you like I said, you do you do kind of need somebody to, I guess, kind of herd the cats, so to speak. Right. So just to kind of give uh, give the uh, all the role playing and characters sort of a direction to go in. And yeah, there are some games out there that are somewhat GMless. Sometimes, in my own personal experience, in having played some of those games, it takes a little longer to figure out what you're going to do. Right. So, having you know a single person who's there to kind of just guide the story along, it definitely has its place. And like I said, if you've got the right mix of players, then it almost doesn't matter what system you're doing. It could literally just be you know playing pretend around a table. Ladies and gentlemen, Renee Ritchie. That's it for episode twenty-two of Penny Red. 
For any questions or comments arising from the episode, daniel at hazardgaming.com. Signed and numbered copies of the first print run of Victoria are available from hazardgaming.com. Click the Buy Victoria button to get to a place where you can purchase that. And you can also purchase print-on-demand versions of the game through Lulu. If you do a search for Victoria and or my name, you should track it down. You can also get PDFs from RPG Now or Drive Through RPG, but also from hazardgaming.com. But if you go to the Buy Victoria page and then scroll all the way down on the right until you're across from the field where you enter your email address for purchasing a PDF, then you'll find a secret link there which will lead you to a secret page. And for the listeners of Penny Red, you can get a PDF of Victoria for only $6.99 as opposed to $9.99. You'll also find other resources there for games set in Victorian times or indeed games of Victoria. Next week's guest is Sean Hayworth, the other half of the duo which run the podcast Bad Wrong Fun. So until then, keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.